everybody, welcome to episode 29 of Life and Life Only. I don't normally do these intros, but uh, I just wanted to clarify a couple of things before I let you loose on today's episode. First of all, thanks for a lot of feedback on episode 28, which was the uplifting conversation about depression. And someone actually mentioned that I should contact Stephen Fry and see if he wanted to do a talk. And uh, I may well do that, in fact. So today's conversation, the thing I wanted to tell you about it was that it was recorded around the autumn last year. It was whenever, in fact, the US were pulling out of Afghanistan, because that was topical at the time we mentioned that. And it was for the podcast Pods Like Us, which is run by Martin Quibell, known as Marv, and it's a podcast about podcasts. I don't really need to say much else because we cover it all in the conversation. The original conversation was actually about three hours, I think. I've pared it down to something manageable. But uh, the original conversation or Marv's edit of it, which was a lot longer than the one here, is on uh, his podcast feed, obviously, and there's a link to his show in the show notes. But yeah, just to say that uh, there was that topical reference. But other than that, you know, obviously all the ideas haven't changed in the last uh, eight, nine months, however long it is. I also wanted to say that um, my life coaching has picked up quite considerably recently. And in fact, one of my clients is a listener to Life and Life Only. And we're finding that the combination of inner and outer truth, which is basically what this podcast is about, is also working well in the life coaching sessions. So I really just wanted to say that... Um, if you or anyone you know is interested in life coaching, please contact me at lifeonlifeonlypod at gmail.com. Regular listeners will know that I've actually done a podcast about life coaching, just talking about really what it is, or it was part of another podcast. In fact, it's episode 19 at the beginning of it. One of the things that comes up with life coaching is the relationship between that and counseling and therapy and mentoring. It's a bit of a gray area at times, but there is crossover there. In fact, I was I have been doing life coaching with a person who actually wanted counselling, requested counselling, but I explained that as part of my life coaching diploma, I had done a few modules on counselling. In fact, I worked as a voluntary counsellor back in the day, at a time, in fact, where I, I probably needed it myself. But uh, there's a certain therapy involved in helping other people, definitely. But just to say that, you know, if you feel like you do need counselling or therapy, life coaching can be a first step what happened with this person was that we did a few sessions together and then I referred her on to the sort of support that I thought she needed. Anyway, yes, lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com and in the show notes I've put my Fiverr page. Fiverr.com is a website where professionals can advertise their services. Anyway, I will now hand you over to Martin Quibell who helmed this episode. We get into all kinds of uh, Life and Life Only topics. I talk about some of the episodes. But there's a few tangents. Uh, inevitably, we start talking about music for a while. And uh, John Lennon, in fact, uh, a link to Glass Onion on John Lennon. There won't be any outro to this. I'll just let the music play out. And I'll see you for the next episode. The next episode, in fact, might be a good idea for me to tell you about it. Because those outside the British Isles may not know the BBC comedy Yes Minister and the spin-off Yes Prime Minister. So... Uh, it might be a good idea. In fact, there's, there's loads of clips on YouTube. There may even be full episodes. I'm sure you can find them somewhere. And of course, the DVD is available. So if, for example, you're from the States or somewhere else outside the British Isles and you've never heard of that, it might be a good idea to at least watch a few clips before that episode comes out. But that episode probably won't be up for two or three weeks anyway because I've got my film gold and glass onion audiences to worry about. Worry about. Don't worry about it. Think about. <laughs> 
Anyway, I'll let you get on with uh, this episode and I'll see you soon for more Life and Life Only. Okay, enjoy. Welcome to Pods Like Us. I'm Martin Crabone, known to my friends as Marv. And this time I am speaking with returning guest from the show that we're looking at this time at Life and Life Only, Mr. Anthony Rattuno. How are you, Anthony? I'm doing very well, mate. Thanks for having me back on the show. Looking forward to this. For anybody listening, Anthony was on previously on episode seven of season one talking about Glass Onion on John Lennon, which is a really good John Lennon-based podcast, if you'd have not guessed from the title. And sort of general Beatles sometimes as well, because it's tough to keep it going, just talking about one person for three years. So. <laughs> Although saying that, there's so many things about him that you can go into, but we're not going down that one. We're not talking about that show this Yeah, time. we've already talked about it, haven't we? For about 20 minutes just now. Yeah, before we started, people can hear we were chatting about that. Life and Life Only and Glass Onion on John Lennon are more or less the same topics, except that in the John Lennon case, we use John Lennon as a launch point. I use John Lennon as a base to branch off into other stuff, and now I've kind of expanded it with this podcast. Yeah, but just to go off on a tangent very quickly, though, you, it's easy to see how you can do that with John Lennon. Though He had his own way about him that sort of lends itself to that discussion. Yeah, just very multifaceted, and there's a reason why millions of people have connected with him as they probably have with Paul and Dylan and other people but the debate I've had on again I'm talking about Glass Onion but the debate I've had on that is how much of it is because he hasn't been here for 40 years and how much of it is him and that's an interesting debate but clearly is multifaceted I mean Dick Cavett said people ask me you know what was John Lennon like what was Muhammad Ali like and he said are they impossible to describe because they have this strange aura you know an aura of celebrity but also an aura of just being a a rather unique individual, you know, put Muhammad Ali in that category, you know, Marlon Brando, people like that. I think because they have that sort of um, manner about them, a lot of them by things that have happened to them in their own lives. Mm. So people like John and Muhammad Ali and Marlon Brando will let those, well, these things that have happened to them, their problems, they would let the way that that affects them come to the fore. They would just let that out and be natural with that. Mm. Whereas someone like McCartney, who has that in his background with his mother's death and this, that, and the other, he'll be a bit more guarded and maybe more protective of that as opposed to letting it all just come out. Well, I think not only Paul, I'd say that's most people. Yeah. You know, if you watch any talk shows, I mean, I think talk shows have really gone downhill, especially now we can watch, you know, Dick Cavett and 
Parkinson from the 70s and stuff. It was just so much more open in those days. I mean, it's kind of a theme of life and life only, really. It's difficult to offer alternative views because most people either A, don't know what you're talking about, B, don't want to know, or C, they wouldn't talk about it themselves. So we latch on to these, latch on to in a good way, we latch on to these people who just say stuff that the average person might want to say, but they're too scared to or they feel uncomfortable with. You know, so they, they do become a kind of weird spokesman. You can live vicariously because you're thinking, oh, John Lennon would say stuff that I'm thinking, but he says it, you know. Yeah, he just said it and damn the consequences, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, I think he knew what he was doing. You know, the sort of revisionist Beatles history is John Lennon was a great PR guy as well, and I totally agree with that. But again, uh, just one final thing about this. Have you ever seen the film Last Tango in Paris? I've seen bits of it. I've not seen the whole film. It's a weird film. It's it's a Bertolucci film from the 70s. And it's about um, two people. It's a guy who's grieving. His wife has just died. And it's about two people having an anonymous sexual relationship where they, they don't even tell each other their names. It's like, can we have an anonymous relationship? And halfway through the film, Marlon Brando just starts giving this speech as his character, talking about his parents and how they were drunks. But his parents were drunks in reality. And essentially... He changed a couple of the details, but essentially he's just, he's giving a speech yeah. as Marlon Brando, basically, playing that character. My father was a drunk, tough, whore fucker, bar fighter, super masculine. My mother was very poetic, and also a drunk. All my memories, when I was a kid, was of her being arrested nude. We lived in a small town. We lived on a farm. And I'd come home after school. And she'd be gone or in jail or something. And uh, I used to have to milk a cow every morning and every night. And I, I liked that. But I remember um, one time I was all dressed up to go out and take this girl to a basketball game. And I started to go out, my father said, you have to milk the cow. And I asked him, I said, would you please milk it for me? And he said, no, get your ass out there. So I went out and I was in a hurry. I didn't have time to change my shoes and I had cow shit all over my shoes. And on the way to the basketball game, it smelled in the car. Um, I don't know, just, I, I can't remember very many good things. Ghosty was on and we did a Marlon Brando special and we were saying, I can't think of any other actor who would do that, who would just bear themselves. I'm sure it's for their own reason, because, you know, everyone knows it's very cathartic to talk about yourself and especially your demons. You know, I do it on my podcast. I love it, you know. It's an incredible opportunity to do it and to have, to actually have people listen to it as well. Wow. You've transitioned well there. <laughs> well, otherwise we'd have gone for an hour on uh, John Lennon. We would, absolutely. <laughs> so going into more detail then, so what's the history mm. of the show? How would you describe it and how did you get it off the ground? Well, actually, the last time I talked to you, I think you were asking me about which podcasts I listened to or how I got started. And the, really the original podcast I listened to was uh, stuff like Joe Rogan, although I've got a bit off Joe Rogan, alternative media, really. So that was kind of one of my 
things. And then Beatles and music and, and films was another sort of strand of it. And then I thought, well, I've, I've appeared as a guest on a few other shows, notably The Mind Renewed, which is a Julian's, it's a friend of mine. Yeah. And we talked about interesting stuff like advertising and propaganda and um, things like that. And then I kind of thought, obviously I had the John Lennon one, but I thought I've really got to do this. I've got to, to sort of do a general podcast that looks at alternative views and truth and things like that. So I just, I finally got it going and it's basically, I call it a search for inner and outer truth because it's basically got two strands. The first strand is to do with the individual. I mean, I've done a show on meditation, which I'm a great proponent of and emotional intelligence using the fantastic book by Daniel Goleman. So part of it is about yourself because I'm also a life coach. And then the outer truth part is, like I say, alternative media. It's sort of pointing out the enormous limitations of a worldview that's based on mainstream media, you know, just reading reading the news and, and feeling that you're informed. And I kind of try and find a way of weaving those two strands together. And really, psychology is it, really, because I'm, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, psychology really drives the world because psychology drives behavior. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sort of trying to mix those two strands. But then within that, you know, sometimes I just use the podcast as a, I would always say a dumping ground for things that I just want to get out there. You must have heard of 10 Rillington Place, you know? The, the I have, yep. Famous Murder, John Christie. Yep, Richard Attenborough uh, I had film. A, Richard Attenborough film, absolutely. I've been a big, um, you can't say fan, can you? Because that's such a horrible case. A follower, interested in it. And I did a thing for YouTube with... Um, some Rillington Place experts and a guy who actually wrote the only biography of John Reginald Halliday Christie. And I thought, well, I'll get that. I'll put that in podcast form because some people prefer to have it in podcast form than to listening to something for an hour on YouTube. Yeah. Inner and outer truth. And then occasional random. There's a story about table tennis, which I'll tell you about later. Cool. <laughs> I used to be a table tennis player. I used to play in the league when I was young with my dad. And I could tell you now, if you want, it was called, uh, the Way of the Nervous Official, a tragic comedy about table tennis. And ask yourself, where else would you find a tragic comedy about table tennis? And it was based on a real event. It was a guy who was going for his umpire certificate. And it was the last, it was the finals of this local tournament that we all used to be in. And he was officiating and he made an absolute mess of all the umpiring. He kept giving the wrong scores. And everyone in the audience, being an English audience, they were sort of half trying to politely stifle their smiles and then half sort of sniggering, you know. <laughs> I've sort of expanded it out, added a few imaginary details, and um, wrote a blog post which came out as about just a 20-minute audio. Yeah. But that's quite funny. So if you want something that's a bit more humorous. And I talk about nerves as well, you know. I'm sure we all suffer from nerves. So talk about why that happens, what actually happens to your body when you suffer from nerves. That was a fun one. I, I suffer from nerves, especially with this show, because I haven't recorded for a while. That can happen, can't it? You know, if, if you don't do something for a long time that you're used to, that can bring those nerves back again because you've almost like not quite lost, but there's that edge that you're used to it. And then when you stop doing something for so long and then come back to it, yeah. a little bit of that comes back again. You're absolutely right. Because I used to teach in um, not schools as such, but language academies in um, Spain was the last place I was in. And uh, it's so weird. Yeah, you teach from September to June or July, and then by July, you're like really firing, you're really into it. And then you have two months off. And we all used to say the same thing. You walk in the classroom and you have this horrible spaced out feeling where you don't know, you feel weirdly disoriented. 
because you've had two months where you haven't been surrounded by 10 people sort of yeah. hanging on your every word and expecting you to teach them English. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. What actually happens then when, when you're in that situation? Do you just go for it or do you have sort of like a something within yourself that you used to do to get yourself ready for that and prepared? Now, it's interesting. Like I said, I, I'm now a life coach and um, I'm, so I'm still mainly an English teacher, but I've just got a few life coaching clients. And I realised that I've basically been self-coaching probably all my life, but particularly, say, the last 10 years where I've been on a kind of relentless self-development kick. And it's almost like giving yourself a pep talk, not actually saying the words, but so saying, oh, don't worry, you know, this happened last year, you know, it's nothing. A lot of it is just saying, oh, it's just your mind, you know, playing tricks, because I think so many of our insecurities about things that it is, in the end, just our mind. My friend calls it mind over mind, you know, rather, <laughs> rather than mind over matter. You've got to conquer your own mind with your mind, if that makes any sense. It does. So, um, but the nerves thing is really interesting because um, what happens is, like, imagine, um, let's take table tennis or tennis or something like that. Imagine you're Roger Federer, yeah. Rafael Nadal. You've been playing tennis for 30 years and you have what's called muscle memory. So your arm knows exactly what to do. You don't have to think about it. You know, you think a little bit about tactics, but essentially when you go to play a backhand or a forehand, you know what to do. You have a thing called expert amnesia, which means that when you become an expert at something, you don't have to think about how to do it. You just know how to do it. But what happens is when you get nervous, try and imagine this, you're in the Wimbledon final or I talked about the snooker final. You probably remember Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis you know, years ago. Suddenly you're there in front of thousands of people. And when you get nervous, you suddenly think, hang on, how do I do this? And you suddenly have to start thinking about, oh, how do I line up the cue or how do I line up my racket? And, you know, it happens to guys, you know, we've probably all been there when you're 16 and you, you go up to a female for the first time in your life and you suddenly forget how to speak. <laughs> you know, you suddenly start tripping over your words. And the reason is because the nerves has taken away your expertise at speaking, you know, not speaking great things, but just speaking. You suddenly got to remember that it's a horrible feeling, but I think I just got over it through doing gigs and, you know, being a teacher. I mean, I've been nearly 20 years being a teacher to get used to standing in front of people. But yeah, I kind of self-coach to answer your question, really. Give yourself a pep talk. I used to be in bands playing bass mainly. When I first started doing that, there were the nerves there. But then when you do it a lot in a band, those nerves don't show quite as much because... Like you said, it's it's like almost like a second nature in a sense. Dear me, I can't imagine what the nerves would be like now because I've not gigged in maybe 15 years, so I don't oh, know what wow. it'd be like now. Well, I found um, one way is to, uh, this sounds a horrible prospect, but do something that makes you even more nervous. I'll give you an example. I used to do a bit of acting. I went to drama school and I did some amateur, and I did a couple of Shakespeare plays. Okay. I mean, they weren't even like well-known ones. It, I think it was one called Love's Labour's Lost, which is not even one of his best known. And the nerves of trying to learn the lines, because it, it's English, of course, but it's obviously a different type of English. And so I hadn't quite learned the script properly. And someone said a line that I thought was my cue for my next line, but it wasn't. And suddenly you're like, oh, Jesus, where am I in this play? Like, because something, something like Hamlet, maybe, or Macbeth or King Lear, I know the plot very well, so I kind of know where we were. But this one, I was like, oh, my God, where am I? That horrible feeling. I think it was just chosen by our teacher. I think they just purposely just didn't want us to do Hamlet because I, I suppose it's very difficult to start doing, you know, to be or not to be speech, knowing all the history of it and <laughs> all the actors who've done it before you. So I think it was a good, yeah, it was a smart choice. 
by our drama teacher to choose that one. We did um, Merchant of Venice, which I always quite liked. Yeah, I like that And then that we one. did Measure for Measure, which is that's a good one. Minor Shakespeare, but as you know, you know, minor Dylan, minor Beatles, minor whatever is often as good or better than the famous ones. And then I also did a little bit of stand-up comedy. I just did a course and a few newcomers gigs. So it's an interesting thing where if you do something that's really, really, really scary, then the slightly scary thing like playing music doesn't seem so bad. So that's quite a good, good thing you can try. But obviously doing the really scary thing is then a horrible prospect, but it's a sort of a way of, I don't know, navigating that, you know. To someone starting out with Shakespeare, they probably find Hamlet is a very accessible story because although it gets a bit complicated towards the end with all the poisonings and everything, essentially it's a pretty simple story. But then you get other ones which are very, very convoluted. In, in the musical realm, you've got, you've got that where there are sort of songs where, oh, uh, Lemmy used to get fed up with, um, from, from Motorhead, he used to get fed up with the, the Ace of Spades. Colin Hay from Men at Work, he absolutely hates the song Down Under. And there's a lot of groups that are like that, where there'll be the song that's the more famous song, but they themselves are fed up with that song. Did you used to watch Big Train? Yes. Do you remember the one with Ralph McTell? Go on. Really funny. You know, Ralph McTell had a song called Streets Streets of of London. London. Yeah. Just for your your overseas listeners, yeah, Big Train was like a a sketch show. Simon Pegg was in it, wasn't he? He was in Shaun of the Dead, various other people. I can't remember which actor it is, but they're playing Ralph McTell. It's a kind of a folky crowd little folk club and everyone's clapping going oh yeah brilliant and then Ralph McTell says uh, I'm going to play you a new song <laughs> and then the audience immediately starts sort of whispering among themselves and looking uh, disgruntled and they all start going no no streets of London the streets of London <laughs> like, as if they just want him to play that song over and over again oh it's brilliant so yeah you can get saddled I mean if you're lucky I mean even think of the stones how big the stones are in the end you know they probably have to play uh, what would it be? Satisfaction, Honky Tonk Women, Jumping Jack, Flash, Sympathy for the yeah. Devil. They're almost obliged to play six or seven songs, aren't they? Even with a massive back catalogue like that. Do you remember the story of um, Jimi Hendrix when he used to do concerts and people used to shout titles out to him? Jimi Hendrix used to used to shout back, I'm not a jukebox for God's sake. <laughs> was that Jimi Hendrix? Oh, that was right. Jimi Hendrix that, who used to say that. I heard that from Bill Hicks used to say that. Do you want to hear a really weird fact about Jimi Hendrix? Well, Go on. I went to see a Jimi Hendrix tribute act years and years ago, probably in about the 90s. Do you know the song Third Stone from the Sun? I do very much, yeah. You know, etc. It's a sort of science fiction-y song. They said, we reckon Jimi Hendrix, because he used to watch a lot of telly in England, we reckon he was a Coronation Street fan. And this guy said, because if you think about Coronation Street, goes... And if you think about it, it does sound pretty similar. So they proceeded to play Coronation Street in the style of Third Stone from the Sun and then segued into Third Stone from the Sun. Here's a weird one, Jimmy, because Noel Redding's mum, you know, the bass player Noel Redding, his mum really liked Jimmy and she was really protective of him. She used to say things like, oh, you know, that poor young man, you know, he needs a good night's sleep or something because Jimi Hendrix, by about 69, he looked like he hadn't slept for weeks and the other famous one is the song fire it was like a, a snowy night or a cold night in england jimmy said to noel redding's mum, oh, can i stand next to your fire <laughs> and then turn that into a song yeah it's great that's brilliant 
Should we go back to life on my phone? <laughs> Possibly, because I was going to carry Remember on that? down there. Then we need to go back to the podcast we're talking about. So how do you research the subjects that you're talking about in the show? And how do you come up with the subjects as well? I mean, honestly, kind of like with the John Lennon one, I'd already had 10 years of accumulating you know, ideas and material because I used to have a blog, which is pretty extensive. So quite a lot of the Life and Life Only shows tend to be me reading an essay I've written or an essay that someone else has written in the case of War is a Racket, famous Smedley Darlington Butler short book. Yeah. So a lot of it is already there. And what I do typically is I'll read this essay and then I'll interject with um, comments. Some of them are sort of updates, like um, I think one of the one of the most important ones I've done is one called Conspiracy Theory, a powerful phrase, because it's very interesting how a conspiracy theory is a real thing. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but now it's become a complete catch-all phrase. If you try and give somebody a narrative that's not what the mainstream narrative is, they get this sort of weird allergic reaction. They sort of look at you in a strange way and say, oh, oh, you're not into conspiracies, are you? Or something like that. So that was one of the big ones. And I kind of updated it with quite a lot of evidence. I think I did that one last year, but I'd originally written the blog post in 2014, something like that. So I updated it. So the research is already already there, really. But obviously, if I get, um, you're mentioning the Doug Valentine one that you, you said, told me you'd listen to. Yeah. I read uh, his book, The Phoenix Programme, which is about a program in Vietnam that most people would have no idea even existed. And then I did the audio book, very long, something like 15 hours or something, of a book he did called The CIA as Organized Crime, which is just absolutely fascinating, just mind-blowing stuff. So obviously sometimes it, it's books you have to read, or I had a guest on called Austin Moore, who's an NLP practitioner, and he, he gave me, he showed me an interview that he'd done of about an hour. So I watched that. So it's common with podcasts, I suppose. Yep. Sometimes it's books, sometimes it's... Uh, often if I have a guest on, I'll probably listen to a couple of other podcasts they've done just to get an idea of what they're like, or, you know. But at the same time, I try not to preempt too much. You know, try and leave it fresh. It lends itself to your show better that way because you're allowing them to bring themselves out more and you're, you're delving into it rather than going into it knowing everything about the subject. It's mm. more you gleaning that information from the person, which is what makes the show interesting. Yeah, and I think my secret weapon is editing. I don't edit in the sense that it changes the conversation because as we know, you know, you, especially with TV, when you watch something on TV, it could be edited very, very differently to create a very different thing. I don't do that. But what I do is I say to myself, because I'm going to be editing it, just go for it. And if, you know, you ask a question that doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't matter because you can just cut it out. I try and give myself as much of a free license as I can during the recording to just try things, you know. It's like, you know, again, it's like music, isn't it? You know, when I was recording my albums in Madrid, I, I would just, on the takes or when I was writing the songs, just give yourself a license to do anything because if you're going to be editing it later, you you know, you could format it a little bit. I think last time I was on, you were, you were asking me about advice and I think I was saying, try to find a balance between loose and slightly smooth yep. without being slick. I think there's a distinction between smooth and slick. Personally, this is only my personal opinion. I'm not into those podcasts, which is a couple of friends just talking for hours and hours and 
with no editing whatsoever and just lots of sort of in jokes. You know, you find yourself doing it when I do film reviews. You know, sometimes you there'll be an in joke between the two of you that people wouldn't understand, which is fine. Yeah. So basically, I uh, try and be as free as possible during the conversation and then sort of sort it out later. Sometimes there've been some quite big editing jobs where people have mentioned something that we were talking about earlier and they've mentioned something they forgot to say and then you've got to slot it in. You know, it's a bit tricky at times, but it's kind of worth it when you hear it back. It's a bit like you've mentioned Douglas, but actually during the the show itself, we've not mentioned him at all. That was pre-show when we were talking about... Oh, was it? Right, right. Well, that was an interesting one, yeah. It's a guy, like I said, Douglas Valentine, he's written these books about Vietnam and the CIA. And the thing is, he's actually hard of hearing. And he was following the Skype subtitles. And uh, I invite you and the listeners to check out the Skype subtitles sometimes. It's quite hilarious because they're not bad, but, you know, they're, they're phonetically done. You know, when subtitles are done phonetically, you get this sort of weird poetry yeah. sometimes. <laughs> so he was following that. So a couple of times he actually answered a question that was completely different to the one I asked him. But he was such a good guest. Like he had so many amazing insights that, you know, I just sort of worked it out in the editing. <laughs> How did you do that then? Did you, I mean, did, did you do any re-record from your end so that the questions were changed to go that way? No, what happened, I think what happened from memory is he sort of answered a question, not completely different, but a slightly different question. And then I think I sort of repeated the question I'd said earlier. So I tagged his later answer to my original <laughs> question. And then I tagged the extra bit. I sort of, sort of tagged it onto one of his answers. So... It came out a little bit funny at various times, but I think the information was so good that he was putting out that it didn't really matter, you know. But, it, yeah, I've had a few adventures with that. I've had people who, um, one time I was recording and their voice came out terribly, but they'd done their own recording where their, their voice came out well, so I had to stitch the two together, which took, oh, just hours and hours because we hadn't started the recordings at the same time. Editing can be a bit hideous at times, but... Because it's it's kind of it's worth it when you hear it back and it sounds nice, you know. At Chen does that actually, you know, something similar to that. When when he'll record his show uh, when they was fab, you'll say something all between you all, and then um, and then he'll suddenly say, "Oh, I'm just going to say this now so I can edit it in," and then he'll mm. say something, and the the reason is because it wasn't quite clear. It was almost exactly the same as the question he asked, but it had gone into a dip, slightly different era where he's saying, well, if I worded the question this way instead, it fits better with the answer that you gave. He will then edit it after that to work that way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I love his editing, yeah. I was on his show a year and a half ago, maybe, and we did a, a commentary on the Ruttles talking over the film. And it was really tricky because we were on... Um, is it Zencaster he uses? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So we had the film going on YouTube and then obviously we're doing a commentary, but we can't see each other. It's audio. And he did an amazing job of syncing. Because with commentaries, you've, you've got to have the, the film going in the background yep. just in case people aren't watching along with it. Obviously, we encourage them to watch along. It's much easier. Yeah. Just did this with Jaws, actually, for my film podcast. Did a Jaws audio commentary. And he managed, yeah, he managed to stitch it all together. It was very impressive, particularly since he was... Oh, he's now back to putting out a show a week. I kind of put out roughly a show a week but across my three podcasts. And then if I'm in trouble, I'll put something out from ages ago. <laughs> Give it new life. But I don't really feel any pressure to get anything out because I don't have a boss or an editor. A lot of the stuff I say is quite 
provocative. Yeah. Because, again, the general conceit of the show is that I believe, and I, I used to work with activists in London, so I've had some experience. I still believe that the majority of people follow mainstream news and more or less believe it. Whereas I think mainstream news is a good source for just events, as in the US of pulling out of Afghanistan. But having discovered podcasts and things, the people who would do two, three, four hours of analysis, you realize how incredibly more complex the world is than the one that's presented to us. I don't apologize because I think that's wrong to say I'm sorry for having alternative views because they're based on a lot of the time on research as well as intuition. But I do kind of say that like, I'm not here to offend anyone. However, this is my podcast. I've taken the time to create it. I'm obviously paying for it. It's not very expensive, but you know, Podbean fees and all that. Yes. Yeah. I bought the equipment. This is my platform and I'm going to say what the hell I want, you know, and if you don't like it, you're free to turn it off. This is the thing. Do you remember um, Jerry Sadowitz, the Scottish stand-up comedian? Yeah. Not inflammatory in terms of, you know, politics or anything like that. Just making really, really inflammatory jokes and stuff. And I went to see him, actually. I was in Australia. I went to the Melbourne Comedy Festival and he was there. He'd got in the Melbourne papers for being offensive. And he said, look, you know, if you're offended, what the uh, are you doing at my show? You know, you can't come to my show and then, then start being outraged. It's the same with podcasts. You know, if, if someone says something that offends you, then just turn it off. But if you choose to listen, that probably means that you're slightly interested in it and you believe maybe there would, maybe there is a kernel of truth there. So, yeah, the English side is definitely, you know, we have to apologize for breathing almost, don't we? But <laughs> you can break that conditioning gradually. Hang out with some Americans because they seem to be a lot. I remember when I, when I lived in, uh, in Asia, there was a woman, American woman, who I was quite friendly with because she was a teacher as well. And I noticed, like, when she would talk to people, instead of saying, oh, could you do this? Or would you mind if you did that? Or I was wondering if you could do this. She would just say, can you do this? Could you do this? Just more directly. And I, I just felt like you just get things done much quicker. <laughs> As an English teacher, I could tell you, British English is full of, you know, could you do this? I was wondering if you could. Do you think you could? Sorry for asking, but could you? You know, so it's full of all these ways of making everything sound much more indirect. So. Sometimes, you know, hang out with some Americans or some Aussies and it's just like direct. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you find the guests that you have on your show? And then how do you get them onto your show? More or less the same with the John Lennon ones. Some people in this glorious world we live in now, which is sometimes glorious, sometimes not. Douglas Valentine, again, I just heard him on a couple of podcasts, just wrote to him on his website. And then about a week later, he said, yeah, I'll talk to you. And it just gets set up like that. Austin Moore, who was the NLP guy, he's the brother of a friend of mine who I used to teach with years ago. You just make acquaintances over the years. Oh, I did a did a show on, um, I'm going to guess you're a Black Mirror fan, the one Nosedive, you know, the one about the social ratings? I haven't actually seen Black Mirror. Oh, that's really good. I think it's my favourite episode of Black Mirror. Okay. It's the one, uh, what they have now in China, the social credit system. It's a heightened version of that where everywhere you go, you're just constantly rating people. Really, really interesting. I saw a really good analysis of that on YouTube from a, a guy called Harry. And again, there was a, an email address and I just wrote to him and I said, oh, do you fancy, because his video had only been 20 minutes. I said, do you fancy, you know, doing a deep dive on that? People just generally say, yes, you know, you don't get rebuffed too much. You know, some people are busy. And when we were talking last time, I said, in a way, I'm not really interested in having famous people on my shows. Yeah. 
even let's take Paul McCartney, you know, someone like that. I'm sure if Paul McCartney wrote to me and said, I'd really like to be on Glass Onion, I wouldn't turn him down, of course. But, yeah. <laughs> but in a funny way, any time that I've had any contact with someone who's slightly famous, essentially you're going to get less time. They'll probably say, oh, I've only got 30 minutes or whatever. And they're going to start giving you these stock answers. Even Doug Valentine, who's not really famous, but he's sort of a respected author. I had to kind of get him off that tack of giving those same answers. So I, I tend to contact people who are either not famous or not particularly famous, but just whose work I like. And most people, you know, they just say yes, generally. You know, you word it in a particular way, flatter them a little bit. Everyone likes a bit of that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you should say that because the other podcast that I do, which is the George Harrison podcast, we've got an episode coming out where we spoke with Ken Womack and Jason Kruper about the um, new George Harrison, Eric Clapton book that they've written all things must pass away and other love stories or other assorted love stories we had ed chen on as a third chair so there was me hudson and ed and on the lead up to it i was talking with ed and explaining to him that you know i've purposely avoided listening to any of the other plethora of beatles related shows because as we both know there's, there's a lot of them mm -hmm. because i didn't want them to picture the way that i or the questions that I'd end up asking the mm. two of them. And then uh, Ed actually gave me a really good answer to that. And he said, he says, I look at it in the way that if I hear another show talking to an author about a book, sometimes I'll purposely take note of the questions that they've been asked so many times and I'll avoid that. And I'll be looking at the questions that they're not asking. Yeah, I do exactly the same thing. Actually, I've, I've done that. I've written down areas especially i think ken and um, jason have done the rounds of a lot of the beatles shows the same as uh, chip mattinger and mark easter yeah when they brought out eight arms to hold you they contacted me and said oh would you like us to be on the show and i said yeah sure and then i found you know they've already been on four or five other ones i often say to guests actually i just make it clear to them that i'm sensitive to the fact that they've been asked this stuff like dan richter you know i had dan richter on a couple of times yeah you know, and everyone and his, every man and his dog has asked him about Stanley Kubrick and what's yes. it like working on yeah. 2001 and what was John Lennon like? Rod Davis as well, of the Quarrymen. He actually said to me, like, with characteristic Scouse directness, I said uh, off mic, I said, oh, what's it like doing these interviews? And he said, oh, it does get a bit boring when people ask the same stuff. So I try and do the same. Sometimes it's a bit unavoidable, but I really believe that podcasts particularly, like I say, since they're generally non-commercial, there's not really any point just asking the same questions that someone's going to be asked if they go on BBC radio or something. We, we have this outlet to come at things from different angles. I think that's the beauty of it. Back in the old days, a lot of bands and artists used to do pre-recorded question answers, didn't they? And they used to send mm -hmm. them out to different radio stations. They would pre-record the pretend interviewer asking a question and then have the pre-recorded answers that the record company have sent out to all of these radio stations. That's it in a nutshell, basically, where they're all giving the same answers to everything all the time. Yeah. Whereas what you're trying to do then and what I learned from that that Ed said was don't do that. Instead, look for the subjects that people haven't broached and then yeah. there you've got the more interesting thing because, dear me, I'm going back, I'm going back to the Beatles again and I'd really rather no, not. No, that's all right. <laughs> but, you know, it's the stock of, oh, well, 
how many times can Paul McCartney rehash the yesterday story? Well, he managed to again, didn't he, for that 3 2 1. I don't know if you're a tennis fan, but when you watch those press conferences and they go, so Novak, you know, Djokovic or whatever, Andy Murray, so what did you think of your game today? They just have to say, with sport, it's a thing like, what are you going to say? Like, oh, I played well in the first set, didn't play so well, my backhand was good today, my serve was good. And I was just thinking, God, it must be so boring. I mean, okay, they have a privileged life. You know, they get paid very well, etc. But um, <laughs> have you ever seen the um, documentary Radiohead, Meeting People is Easy? No, but I would love to see that because I, I, I love yeah, Radiohead. Yeah, I do as well. It's from, it's sort of Ben's OK Computer era. It's definitely pre-Kid A. And, you know, you can tell very quickly that Radiohead, they're, they're quite shy, actually. Maybe not Tom so much, but the others. And they're kind of very, they're very artistic, creative people. And you can just tell they're just so tired of this crap, just these boring questions. And they have to do these, you see them doing these inserts. Hi, this is Ed from Radiohead. You're watching MTV. And you can just see at his face. I mean, I haven't seen the doc for years, but I remember it. And you're thinking, oh, God, I know he's in a privileged position. I know he's earning a lot of money, but you still kind of think, oh, poor guy, you know, in a sense, he just looks so uncomfortable. And, and with Paul, I mean, I've been commenting on it recently, and it's very tricky when you've got a John Lennon podcast, because when you start saying negative things about Paul McCartney, the sort of tribal stuff comes out. And, you know, people will intimate, oh, you know, you're a Lennon guy or whatever. You know, I'm doing a John Lennon podcast because I tend to connect more with him. But I've said a million times, I think they're perfectly equal. But the thing with Paul McCartney is just everywhere. It's like you never get any space to breathe. You know, he brings out McCartney 3. Before you know it, there's McCartney reimagined and then he's doing something else. He's just always there. And I was saying recently, you know, I hope he lives a long life. But when he eventually goes, there'll be a, a huge reappraisal and he'll get, in a way, more love then. Because obviously you get more love when you're not around for various reasons, psychological reasons, and just because people suddenly realise there's not going to be any more music. But the guy is just everywhere, you know. And I've been staying off social media a lot because, you know, you join a lot of Beatles groups. The first thing you see is like Beatles, Paul McCartney, John Lennon. It can kill it for you, you know. And again, I don't listen to the other guy's show so much anymore, partly because it, I don't know, I don't want to have that feeling where I, if they do a really good show, I don't want that kind of ego thing of, ah, oh, fuck, I wish I'd talked about that or something. I don't want to feel that because I just want to feel that they're just my friends and we're all in the, in the same uh, family, if you, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I don't want to feel competitive. I don't want, you know, the ego to protrude. So, you know, but it's just tricky. Like, Paul McCartney is so overexposed. I mean, he's just, the guy's just everywhere. I suppose in his time of life, he wants to get it all out before he eventually passes. Yeah, because he's got, he's got that work ethic already instilled in him from sure. back in the day. But even up to the age of 80, well, that's incredible. Yeah. But you're right, yeah, when people pass away, there is a reappraisal because it, it, it's happened over the years with, with Cobain and other people as well. I, I can see it happening with um, Chris Cornell and Soundgarden as well and people like that. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I just saw last week when Nirvana came to Britain. I think it was on BBC or ITV. Really, really good because Nirvana... Rather like Jimmy, they kind of made it more in Britain than in America initially. And there's some really lovely stories of them staying in these B&Bs and these really like cheap hotels in, in London. And everyone speaks really well of them, just said, oh, they were really nice. Yeah. I think Nirvana's music has just aged fantastically. I was listening to some of it the other day. I think it's just quality, absolute quality. I didn't realise... Again, I got from this documentary, Kurt Cobain was actually talking about the Beatles. And he said, I love the Beatles and I love Led Zeppelin. Yep. And I suddenly realised Nirvana is actually a mixture of 
Beatles melodies and sort of Led Zeppelin style hard rock. I was yeah. suddenly thinking, wow, I think that's why I like it so much. It's obviously the lyrics have got that personalization, but it, it's almost the Beatles meets Led Zeppelin. You've made me realize now about that because so Mike from the podcast, My Classic Album, mentioned another podcast again, because of it being, I think, do you say something about it being the 30th anniversary or something of. Never mind. Never yeah. mind. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, so he's talking about that on a future episode and he wants people's memories of it or opinions and he's asked people's favorite song. I have trouble with that because I, I think there's so many good songs on that album. But in the end, I ended up picking uh, Come As You Are. And I mean, th- this memory of that from when I've been in bands and we, we actually played that. But thinking about it now, I can see why I've probably picked Come As You Are is because it is that. It's the riff mentality of the, uh, or the riff feel of the Led Zeppelin, but with the mm. melodicism of the Beatles. Absolutely. I've not thought about that until you just said it, yeah. and it's just made me realise exactly why that song resonates with me. Yeah, great band. But yeah, the thing about you saying about After People Die, it also happens, actually, it happened with Muhammad Ali, actually, although he only died in 2016, after he was stricken with Parkinson's. I'm going to sound terribly cynical now, but if you notice, suddenly he gets equated with Martin Luther King and people like that. And Muhammad Ali was an important person, but he was also a pretty flawed character. Yeah. If you know the story of Malcolm X, sorry, this is a tangent, we can't go on now. I think Muhammad Ali was majorly brainwashed by the Nation of Islam, and Elijah Muhammad, who just happened to father something like eight children with six different women who were his secretaries. So yeah, very holy man. (laughs) And Muhammad Ali basically abandoned Malcolm X, and you know Malcolm X was murdered almost certainly by the nation of Islam. But yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? When people die or people get very ill, you just see them in an immediately different way. It's weird. Yeah, but So yeah, circling back, I think when Maka dies, I think he'll probably get the respect that he... I don't know if he's still craving it now. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he'll get it all, ironically, when he's not here anymore, you know? Yeah. Well, beyond Mike or off Mike, we're saying that John Lennon's genius is being open to weird things happening. We were off mic, but saying that, but oh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. We were talking about happy accidents. We were, we were, we were talking about happy accidents and our blonde on blonde from Bob Dylan had a specific sound to it because of the immediacy oh, yeah. or perceived immediacy of some of the recordings on there. Yeah, because Dylan would get them in and sometimes not even tell them the cause and just start playing and say, oh, come on, play along. And Sometimes when that happens, when you don't generally what key the song's in, you can more or less follow along, especially if you're... And Nashville, those guys were Nashville, very, very professional musicians. They'd be like four in the morning and Dylan says, oh, I've just written this song. And sometimes when you play along and you don't quite know what you're doing, that's where these magical things can happen. Same with podcasting. I had a podcast, I um, can't remember which one. I think it was one of the John Lennon ones. And uh, I'd meant to prepare. And uh, I think I was rushing. I was in Madrid and I was rushing. I'd done a class in the morning. Then I'd done a recording session for my album. And I rushed home and it was about two minutes until I would start. And I just thought, oh, sod it. You know what you're doing with podcasting. Just go for it. And of course, there were no problems. You know, we just had a, an hour or so and it went fine. You know, you've got to trust yourself sometimes. I like the fact that in your show, you allow yourself to go down these rabbit holes. I mean, I'm assuming that you've got sort of like a vague structure of certain things that you want to touch on. But then occasionally, if your mind wanders a certain way, you'll allow that to happen to see where it leads to. With life and life only, you mean? Yes, with life and life only, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've just, I don't know, I've just been on this sort of self-development 
knowledge kick for 10 years. I've listened to thousands of hours of podcasts, some sort of lighter stuff, music and film and stuff. But I listen to lots of heavy stuff, psychology and stuff like that. So I've just, I've just got a ton of ideas. And part of it is the loss of fear, which has come a lot from self-development and things. I wouldn't say I don't care what people think, but I'm not bothered what people think, particularly if I'm putting out a podcast in my own house. Yeah. So I used to work with activists and we used to stand on um, Oxford Street and we had a sign that said, we have important questions. See me <laughs> making a joke on when the headmaster would give you a note at school that said, see me, you know, or the teacher. That's when you know you're in trouble. Like I was saying earlier, if you're outraged with something, you could just walk away from it or switch it off. So the fact that we were saying we have important questions in a jokey way with a sort of a smiley face, people would come up to us and we would ask them about the world and say, what's your understanding of the world? Have you heard of this? And often when you start to bring up anything at all about 9-11 or 7-7, you know, and I don't think 9-11 was an orchestrated event. If I had to guess, I'd say that the intelligence services probably knew it was coming. And in fact, we know that because there was a memorandum that said Bin Laden determined to strike. <laughs> We've seen it, you know, Michael Moore showed us. So I, I've been confronted by people getting really angry in my face, saying, how dare you fucking question that? Don't you have any respect for the families? You know, I used to busk in the underground on, on Friday nights in King's Cross because it was one of the best pitches. You got more money. <laughs> yeah. There was a thing where they were booking pitches. So you, you book two hours at a certain pitch. And King's Cross can be quite rough. And on Friday and Saturday nights, I'd get drunks, never nasty, but sort of trying to intimidate me a bit or singing along like right in my face and coming up next to me and doing an air guitar. And hmm. I used to be a manager of a William Hill, you know, which is a betting shop in Camden, again, which can be a bit of a rough area. Absolutely. So you'd get people, a lot of people go from, they spend their whole day going from the, the pub to the bookie. So they get a bit pissed. That's drunk for your American listeners. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when they lose a bet, you know, you get people abusing you going, you fucking. So I've had all that. So the idea of just putting stuff on a podcast and getting a message back, you know, it's not really going to phase me. So really it all comes down to fear. It's what I learned. You know, so many people are just full of fear and they don't even realize it. And so they just don't want to go anything. And I'm, this is where, you know, I've I very, very occasionally get a bit angry or, or a bit irritating on my podcast when I'm doing solo ones, not with guests, at basically the compliance of the public and the fact that, as I was saying earlier, this conspiracy theory phrase is now used for anything. You're not allowed to question vaccines or you're anti-vax. And my question is, why in 2021 are there still only two positions, pro-vax and anti-vax? Yeah. You know, why is there nothing in the middle? I don't understand. I went to a writer's group here where I live and they were nice people, you know, but I was saying, you know, how many people are in this group? And they said, well, there's a core of five or six. And we got this weirdo anti-vaxxer who came last week. And I was thinking, for God's sake, you're a creative writer. Your whole point is that you're supposed to be open to things. It just sort of irritates me how people essentially just allow themselves to be told what to think. And of course, the biggest problem with that is that the one thing that no one wants anyone to say to them is, uh, you know, you've been duped or you're being propagandized and you don't realize it. Because like I said, this thing in London, we would show documentaries about, it could be 9-11, but more typically things like the banking system. And when people get confronted with, um, do you know what cognitive dissonance means? Yeah. Yeah, you know, for people who don't know, it's when 
essentially you get information that goes against your core beliefs or I would argue your conditioning. And people get really angry. Like you just see it in their face because they realise that perhaps what we're telling them is actually the truth and that what they've been told is basically a lie and not necessarily on purpose. You know, my parents didn't know any alternatives to what, what we saw in our daily newspaper. You know, none of my school teachers knew that. So it's not to blame them, but Life and Life Only really is about, if you listen to a few of the episodes, I would challenge you to say, do you really think the mainstream media are telling you everything you need to know? Do you think a few sound bites about Afghanistan is everything you need to know? So yeah, that's it really. <laughs> I can't even remember where I started with that. Yeah, yeah, lack of fear. So I would say to people, it's a humble thing to realise that we are sort of in a society that the media is a, very much based on fear. It's very slickly delivered. You know, the BBC is incredibly slick, but if you really drill down, you will find there's a, there's a huge reality. And now we have podcasts and they're offering you that and offering you deep dives on very, very complex topics. And you realise what I see on the news is just like a slickly delivered five-minute soundbite. That's I true. I think I'll stop there, Marv. That's, like, that's okay. <laughs> Again, if people are interested and they want to listen to Life on My Phone and they start to feel offended, turn it off. You're absolutely entitled to do that. Yep. Yeah. I, I can't remember who it was that uh, somebody in the music world who said something about, you know, if, if you don't like your music, don't listen to it. There's always somebody <laughs> else there for you to find. Or if you don't That's like it. this I mean, song, we'll, be, we'll release another one in a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you remember the comedian, Tim Vine? Yeah. Oh, I love that guy. Brilliant. I love Tim he, Vine. He had like the world record for uh, telling jokes and he's got all these one-liners like, Velcro, what a rip-off. Yeah. <laughs> <So>, <laughs> it's like almost uh, deliberately bad. And he said it comes from insecurity. Because if I tell a thousand jokes, if someone doesn't like the joke, there'll be another one in like three seconds. Yeah. But yeah, I love that guy. It's great. You've reminded me of a video that I watched uh, recently of uh, Lee Mack, comedian. So he's on stage and he's, um, there's this person at the front of the audience who's got glasses and he says, oh, can I just do that or whatever? And so he's got the glasses of this person and, and he starts doing like a uh, an Eric Morecambe impression you know with the raising of the glasses and everything oh yeah like waggling the glasses waggling the glasses and everything and then there's this person at the front another person at the front who shouts you don't know how funny that is and then lee mack goes that's the weirdest heckle i've ever had (laughs) and then he said to them he says of course i know how funny that is he says i'm paying paid a fortune to stand up here and do these things he says what do you think he says do you think i actually come out here and just tell true stories and i'm here going why are you laughing? This is real life here. I'm giving myself out to you. And what's really good about that is that it, a lot of these comics are following a script or a basic how they go from one end of the show to the other. Mm. The brilliance there is that that heckle has suddenly shown the talent therein where he can just go off script slightly and go mm. into something else and just naturally come out with a humorous response and then he brought it back again yeah i think a lot a thing i learned on this stand-up comedy course i did years ago it's not really about gags it's not really about punchlines. with some comedians it is but it's about just developing timing and being able to tell bad jokes well because in the end it's not the quality of the joke it's, it's how funny the experience is for the audience just to give you a tim vine example you know he does songs yeah so he goes, I'm going to sing a song to you, ladies and gentlemen, called It's Easy. And all the song is him going, it's easy, it's easy, easy, easy. He gets the audience to, to repeat, easy, easy, easy. It just goes on for ages. It's easy. It's easy. 
Because he just got the timing, you know. Yeah, that's that joke. They said, "What is it? What's the best thing about you know the first thing you should learn about comedy?" And then there's a long pause as well. Timing. Yeah, I've got very good comic timing. Yeah, yes, something yeah, like that. That's the one. It? Yeah. We know we were talking earlier about um, people personalising. You know, like Lennon and Brando or whoever. Yeah. Bill Hicks had a great. He had a great opening line. He'd come on stage and go. Um, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I've been on the road doing comedy for 10 years, so bear with me while I plaster on a fake smile and plough through this shit one more time. <laughs> and then he said, yeah. uh, only teasing, it's magic every single show. But I, I know someone yeah. was talking to me the other day about potentially going and doing a stand-up for the first time or something, and mm. um, and I, I said to them, I said, look, I said, I've not done it myself. I said, but I would offer one suggestion or whatever. And, you know, if you, you come out with an opening joke... And you only get one person towards the back who responds. And other than that, it's dead. Take note to that person at the back and actually bring that into the into the thing. I said, so what you will do is, for instance, you could use a line like you could go, oh, thanks. I've, um, I've sent the money in the post for you or something. Mm. And then I said, yeah. so that then lightens the situation. So always be looking for those sort of times where if it starts to get a bit like that and you've got that, do something about that situation. Mm. It's making a positive out of a negative, basically, you know, life skills. Yeah, like I say, make, making a good show out of bad material in a funny way. If something goes wrong or you lose your thread, turning that into the point, you yeah. know, that's the skill, isn't it? But, I mean, I read a biography of Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks spent so long. I think someone like Jimmy Carr, I'm not really a fan of, but he, when he started, he did 300 gigs a year. Yes. So almost every day. Perhaps you did two shows a night, but you've got to spend that time on stage. I mean, some people are naturals, but you have to just feel comfortable. Again, it's like music. It's like podcasting or anything. When you're comfortable in this space, when I do a podcast, either on like a guest for your show or my own show, something happens to me as soon as I press record and I don't really have to switch it on anymore. It just happens. You get comfortable. And with teaching, again, it's the same thing. You know, when I first started teaching, it's horribly intimidating Yeah, being in a class of 15, 20 people. Um, and I'm lucky because I, I rarely taught children. And I taught children for a year and it, I just found it awful. I used to get this horrible sinking feeling just before the class. But yeah, if I can offer just some advice, what I said earlier, after you've done Shakespeare or stand-up comedy, then playing music in front of people becomes easy. So I would say um, almost like confront your darkest fear in a funny way, which I know is a difficult thing to do. Think about the thing that makes you the most afraid and do it. You know, it could be like approaching a stranger in the street just to, you know, if you're a shy person, some people wouldn't even approach a stranger in the street to ask them the time. But um, I'm planning to do an episode of Life in My Phony where I go into my local town with a, a recorder, you know, like a dictaphone and say to people, would you, would you like to answer a few questions for a podcast? 
And then I'm going to ask them some stuff about, you know, what do you think about, does the media tell you what you need to know? What do you think of conspiracies? Da, 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 da. Do you think we're being propagandized on a daily basis? What's the worst that can happen? They'll say, no, I'm not interested. That's true. Yeah. So I think if Life and Life Only is about anything, it's about realizing that we do live in a fear-based society to some extent, but you can conquer it by just chipping away at it every day, you know? So I, I would like to sort of leave you with that message rather than, depressing stuff like Afghanistan and Iraq and terrorist attacks. Your show, Life and Life Only, is interesting to me because I like to go down these these rabbit holes and essentially I like to listen to things that are almost new to me in a sense because it adds to my own, well, sort of knowledge. When I took part in Gil's show, The Mind Buzz, he allowed me to go down the uh, the rabbit hole that I'd, I'd recently got interested in it's strange because i listened to so many podcasts and then i was listening to of all things a podcast about genesis and they were talking about the um peter gabriel song uh, we do what we're told brackets uh, milgram's 37 that was used on a documentary that song yeah yep and then one of the people that actually does that show mike lord he actually majored in psychology in university and he started to go into detail on what peter gabriel was speaking about in that song which i mean i always thought for all these years i just thought of that song as an interesting vignette of a piece Mm. as opposed to a fully formed song but because he explained where that came from and the story behind it it suddenly made the song more interesting to myself and Mm. i went down the rabbit hole of trying to find out more about what that was all about and it was interesting and then gil as soon as he started the mind buzz, he said, oh, what was that you were talking to me about? And he allowed me to go down that. And For anybody interested, the idea of Stanley Milgram was that, I think he was a lecturer at Yale, and yeah. he was interested in, he had kept close watch of these trials of these mm. uh, German leaders, and the fact that they were basically answering and just saying, look, you know, these things that we did, we did them because we were being ordered to do them and it was mm. our job to do them. Mm. And so Milgram thought of doing these experiments where he would see if that was the truth. If people were told to do things, would they just do them despite the outcome? So mm. he, he came up with this idea where initially the first time that he went through it, he put these uh, advertisements in the newspaper to advertise for people to, or volunteers to take part. Well, actually, they weren't volunteers. They were paid $4.50, I think it was, right. at the yeah. time. So they were brought in by this newspaper advertisement. The idea was that you would have what was called a learner and a teacher. Hmm. So you'd have one person behind the, the glass in one room and in the other room, you had somebody who was attached to an electric chair with electrodes on, and they had these series of words. You'd have associated words. You'd have one word, and you'd ask the the learner for the associative word. And if they got the word wrong, you were to electrocute the learner. You had a dial at the back that sort of like explained different levels, and each time that they got one wrong, it would go up a level as to how the electric shot was. And at the back of them, they had somebody called a supervisor who would just oversee what was happening. And then 
The twist is that the actual person in the electric chair wasn't being electrocuted. They were acting, but it was made out to the teachers that all that they were also some of the people who were brought in from the uh, newspaper advertisement. And then they drew supposedly random as to who was chosen to be the teacher and the learner were really. It was set up so that the people who come from the newspapers advertisements would be the teachers and the learner was actually an actor pretending. And the actual experiment was to find out how far those normal, ordinary people on the streets would go with the instructions they were given to electrocute these people until they would stop doing it. And would they just keep going on? And I just found that fascinating. And they ended up, uh, Stanley Milgram said that he proved that actually if you're ordered to do things, it's very possible that you would go against your natural urge. You know, your morals would go out of the window because of orders. Absolutely, yeah. I think it was a certain percentage would go up to the point where they would actually kill the person. Yeah. I mean, you've really hit on something there because another thing I wanted to say really about uh, media, it's actually well known, this is a fact, that the CIA infiltrated the media, which sounds like some bizarre, again, like a conspiracy theory, but it's Operation Mockingbird is a real thing. And essentially advertising does the same because if you talk to people, they will all say, oh, advertising doesn't work on me. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. There's a reason why advertising is a billion dollar business. It does work on you, but you just don't know it. Yeah, absolutely. So again, a kind of another mantra of life and life only is perhaps that there are forces out there that actually know you better than you know yourself, you know, including me. I'm not saying I'm anything different because they know, they do experiments, they know what triggers to pull. And you see this on social media. There's absolutely no doubt that there are lots of dummy accounts on social media. And I did an experiment, actually. I, you know, this is, this is not the, the most fun way to spend about an hour, but I looked through the YouTube comments. And when, I, when there's a video that's sort of inflammatory, I look through the accounts of people saying, oh, you're a lunatic, you're talking a load of rubbish. And loads of them are fake accounts that have either nothing on them or just like one video. Yeah. And another thing, there's another really interesting video online. And I'm a little bit wary because it's not like a sourced video. It could be slightly staged. But have you ever seen the one that's in a dentist waiting room? And there's about 20 people waiting and 19 of them are actors. And there's only one person in there as a young lady who's genuine and every 10 seconds a buzzer goes off and everyone stands up all the actors stand up okay and the woman the first time it happens is like going, oh, what's going on here but then eventually after about the third time she starts standing up like for no reason whatsoever you just hear beep or a buzzer or a beep yep. and everyone stands up and sits down again that's the hive mentality yeah but what's really fascinating Gradually, like all the actors, they go into the dentists. It's a dentist waiting room, isn't it? And they go in to see the dentist, so to yep. speak. And then what happens is that genuine people start coming in. But this girl has started standing up every time she hears a buzzer. <laughs> and all the other people who are not actors, they all just come in and they all start doing the same thing. And you think, are these people like lunatics or something? But they're not. It's what you said. It's compliance, which yep. is it goes all through school, again, the question is when, how much of it is planned and how much of it is just like the way society is organised. And, and another thing, uh, you have a show called P2. Do you know where that comes from? Obviously, it's a George Harrison song. That actually comes from Propaganda Due, okay. which is an, an Italian secret society that Berlusconi was involved in. 
And I always found that fascinating because how would George Harrison know about propaganda due? Mm. Due is obviously Italian for two. So, the, you know, that'd be worth looking into. It's like, oh, did George Harrison know something? I'm a big fan of Frank Zappa. And he, he did yep. a song called I Am The Slime. But if you ever come across yep. that and you, yep. you kind of think oh, it's just a kind of a goofy song. And then you see the video and I Am The Slime is all about television. And it's all about how television is just filling you full of crap, basically. Not to say that, you know, there aren't entertaining shows, but it's more to do with the news. And again, Bill Hicks used to talk about that, you know, hey, honey, we've got 50 channels of crap on the TV. You know, Pink Floyd as well. That song, uh, Nobody Home from The Wall. I've got however many channels of to choose from. Yes. You can swear, you know, you've said the F word a few times. Yeah, I have, yes. (laughs) I'll put a big E at the end. It's fine. I want to get beeped. Oh, really? Beep yeah. I should have taken <laughs> notes of where you've sworn so I can do that. It's my secret ambition. <laughs> Damn. I'll remember next time and take notes so I can beep you. What shows of yours stand out then? All of them. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. Only kidding now. Listen, <laughs> listen to the whole lot of them. Of course, yeah. I'm just having a look here. So on the more sort of inner truth side, the more inspirational side, you might say, the meditation one I did, because I did a couple of uh, meditation retreats when I was in Thailand, which were absolutely incredible experiences. And the emotional intelligence, I did a three-parter on the Daniel Goleman book. I think one that's very important was this one I talked about, conspiracy theory, a powerful phrase, which is like a one and a half hour deep dive on the phrase itself rather than, you know, I don't look at Princess Diana or, or the moon landings. I'm not even especially interested in that. It's the weaponization of the phrase because it's, it's about shutting down debate. So, you know, you just use that phrase and then immediately X amount of people will just switch off. Yeah. If you want a bit of comedy, like I said earlier, the one about table tennis, and I kind of put on a bit more of a comedic, a lighter, different voice for that one. That's quite an amusing story. This poor guy, you know, he just had this absolute nightmare and I feel bad exploiting it, but it was 30 years ago. Black Mirror fans would like the nosedive one, which again is coming suspiciously true you know i mean you may well find in the next few years that there's a social credit system in the west and obviously you know a pattern that will often come is that people will say oh that would never happen in the west you know stuff that's happening in china but you might find bit by bit using the boiling frog technique of just gradually introducing something and then the interviews there the doug valentine one was a big standout but there'll be many more (laughs) absolutely the table tennis one coming back to that Mm. it's I like the sound of that because it's it almost one of the reasons why I love satire is because that will bring out serious issues, but in a different format. I still think that the class system, one, the famous one where you've got the three people standing side by side, the upper class, the middle class and the working yeah. class. And yeah. I, I still think that is a perfect representation of why satire works and what good satire is. Mm. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. (laughs) I am middle class. (laughs) I know my place. (laughs) I look up to them both. But I don't look up to him as much as I look up to him. (laughs) Because he has got innate breeding. I have got innate breeding, but I have not got any money. (laughs) So sometimes I look up to him. (laughs) I still look up to him, 
Because although I have money, I am vulgar. <laughs> but I'm not as vulgar as him. So I still look down on him. I know my place. <laughs> I look up to them both. But while I am poor, I am industrious, honest and trustworthy. Had I the inclination, I could look down on them. <laughs> but I don't. We all know our place, but what did we get out of it? I get a feeling of superiority over them. I get a feeling of inferiority from him. But a feeling of superiority over him. I get a pain in the back of my neck. <laughs> Satire looks at a situation from all angles, or good satire does. It doesn't accept this opinion or that opinion. It's a more open format, which is what your program is. That's more of an open format where you won't, you will deep dive into it and look in more detail at all sides and what the basic nuts and bolts of it is. I think one of the tricks with that is to give people something that they can enjoy on different levels. Yeah. You know, and if you take, um, I mean, a brilliant example is The Simpsons. Kids can watch that and just get off on the comedy of it, and adults can watch it for the social commentary. Absolutely. So yeah. you can enjoy it. I've never actually been the hugest fan, weirdly enough. I'm not one of those super fans. No. But I can see that at its best, it's doing something very, very clever. I mentioned Bill Hicks a lot, because Bill Hicks and George Carlin are my absolute comedy heroes. Bill Hicks would say, when he'd been saying something very profound, he'd say, don't worry, everyone, there's dick jokes coming. <laughs> just bear with me for five more minutes and then we'll all pull our parachutes and float down into dick joke heaven so yeah that one you're talking about is a frost report isn't it it's john yeah. cleese and the two ronnies yeah so yeah what i did with the table tennis story it's frivolous in one respect it's kind of a humor comedy story but then i kind of go into like i said nerves it tells you a little bit about the english character not wanting to laugh too much but sort of sniggering if I could just tell a very quick story, I was talking about in that table tennis story, I branch off. I used to work in a company, yeah, a retail company. And there was a guy, like a head honcho, who came from Switzerland. He was a weird guy because he was very powerful. He was very high up in the company. Yeah. But he looked like a, almost like a little boy. He was very, very youthful looking and had a kind of very unintimidating way. Anyway, he did this slide presentation and uh, his English was fantastic. But as a non-native speaker, Sometimes, you know, you get mistranslations. At the end of his thing, he said, um, right, everybody, I want to give you my philosophy of business. And, you know, business people always want to talk about being open and everything. My door is always open, all that kind of crap. Yeah. So he pulled down this slide and it said, in order to succeed, we must expose ourselves. <laughs> and I put in the table tennis story. Immediately, the, everyone had the image of uh, boiled sweets and inappropriate behavior. <laughs> You know, the idea of someone with a trench coat exposing themselves. So there's a sort of humour in that. But then, you know, that's a little bit of a comment on the mentality. We're adults, but sometimes we become children, you know, when someone says something like that. We sort of go, hee, 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 you know, that yeah. kind of thing. But I think, yeah, I think I said some somewhere in the story, it's something like people didn't know to behave. It was almost like someone's doing a presentation and you realise their flies are open. It's that kind of thing. You know, it's that such slight uneasiness that comes across the room. One thing I always found fascinating is um, group dynamics. And you'll know from being in a band or being in a classroom teaching, dynamics are a fascinating thing. When I do my meetup group, I've started my own one here where I live. When you get onto certain topics, you feel a sort of slight unease comes over everybody. You know, if you go too far down the rabbit hole, as you were saying earlier, 
it's just all fascinating. Psychology is just inordinately fascinating and you don't really need to study it to have an interest in it because it's everywhere, you know, just watch the way people behave, you know, study behaviour. And you can do that for free just by interacting with people. I almost purposely, mm. I'm going to call it from now on, the unease factor where if I will suddenly feel a little uneasy, I might think, do you know what? I'm going to go into that on purpose now because there must be something behind it that's making me uneasy. And mm. it's almost the danger of the unknown that makes it more interesting. You're absolutely right. When you get that feeling, just try and embrace it. I used to box a little bit. Yeah. More sort of just went to a boxing club, did some sparring and stuff. When people go to boxing matches, there's a weird thing that happens where this sort of bloodlust that <laughs> sort of comes out that's in all of us, you know, because in the end we're still animals, you know, we're civilised. Well, we think we are. <laughs> yeah. But um, the boxer will tell you that their whole life is dealing with discomfort. That's why you don't generally get many middle-class or upper-class boxers who get to the top because boxing is essentially mostly working-class people who come from ghettos who've lived out that discomfort in their whole life, so it's nothing difficult for them. Well, obviously, boxing is a difficult thing. It must be a terribly scary thing, whoever you are. You know, even Mike Tyson used to say, you know, if you don't feel fear when you go in a boxing ring, you're crazy. But it's a wonderful thing to confront your fear and almost start to enjoy it, you know, which sounds very weird. But if you just, with a little bit of sort of training, training yourself, because you get an adrenaline rush. Yeah. You know, and you get an adrenaline rush from pleasurable things, but you also get an adrenaline rush from extreme fear. You know, it's like if you went in the forest and you spotted a bear, like in the distance, <laughs> that would be a horrible feeling, but it would also be an exciting feeling. Takeaway might be just put yourself in a fearful situation. You know, not a terrible situation, but a little bit of fear. It's wonderfully transformative. Yeah. You know, I, I've had over the last 10, 15 years, just profound changes in my life pretty much off my own back. You know, I was inspired by certain people, but I can't tell you how much I've changed. And anyone can do it. Anyone can change. It's not beyond you. Another theme of the podcast is self-talk. Most people, I think, including myself, we, we have an, what they call an inner critic. We have that person in your head that could be your father, could be your teacher, or it could just be nobody. It could just be yourself telling you, oh, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, you can't do that. What are you doing starting a podcast? It's that annoying, cynical voice, but you can crush it. You know, there's an old fable where people in a village lived in the fear of a mythical monster and they saw the huge shadow of it. And as you get closer and closer to it, the shadow recedes and then gradually disappears. And it's yeah. a wonderful metaphor for, you know, the fear we feel. If you just confront it, you actually find there's almost nothing to it. It's an invisible voice or, like I say, it could be your could be your parents or your teacher. But, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing to confront it and conquer it. We've just done two hours, twilly. This is fantastic. I know, flipping out. This... I could do another two hours, so you, you're going to have to rein me in at some point. I am. We're, we're going to have to bring this to an end shortly, I think. Could so. have some lunch. <laughs> so what other shows would you suggest to people that you really enjoy listening to? Oof. I mean, there's so many. More to do with life and life only, more to do with... Um, self-development absolutely yeah psychology there's a great one called psychology in seattle and i actually had the main both the guys i had them on glass onion to talk about john lennon's psychology that is brilliant because it's deep but it's very accessible at the same time there's a good one called tangentially speaking yes i've heard of that one yeah a guy called chris ryan and he's written a book which i'd really like to read called civilized to death which is not as morbid as it sounds but it's talking about how 
modern civilization has brought us, it's almost like two steps forward, one step or two steps back. Technology is great on one level, but we're losing, I think everybody knows this, we're losing that communal feeling of the past. Families are getting split up, that kind of thing. But it's not its not a depressing show by any means. No. If you really want to go a bit more hardcore conspiracy, but very, very well sourced, the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, it's James Corbett, again, who's been on Life and Life Only, very, very reasonable guy. Pretty much everything he says is well sourced, and he believes in open source information. Oh, my God, there's so many. It's hard. And The Mind Renewed, which is a friend of mine. For music, my favorite album with Jeremy Dillon. That's actually the name of the show. Can I have a quick look? Okay. Yep. It's just millions, but I'll try and just pick a couple. I mean, Beatles ones, I'm sure they've all been covered on the show. Glass Onion on John Lennon. That's really good. I'd love to meet that guy one day. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) I really like The Unexplained with Howard Hughes. Yes. Uh, not that Howard Hughes, but he's a guy. I like him because he, he's been a mainstream radio DJ for years. He's found a happy medium where he will embrace alternative ideas, but he will challenge the person. Just a couple more. If you're interested in advertising, there's a good one called The Dark Arts of Marketing, yes. which again is, yeah. is not as dark as it sounds, but it's sort of telling you advertising techniques from a guy who actually uses them in his daily life. For songwriting, you've probably heard of Soda Jerker. Sure Absolutely, yeah. Soda Jerker on songwriting, that's a good one. With Brian Sy. Yeah, they're from Liverpool, aren't they, those guys? Yeah, they, they went to uh, Lipper, didn't they, I think? Lipper, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. A million film ones. I mean, the Projection Booth podcast is good. Next Reel is one I listen to. I'm going to plug a couple I've been on, but only because they're my friends, not because I've been on them. But Real Britannia, R-W-E-L, is about English movies, British movies. Right. And uh, the stinking paws, P A U S E. The guy who runs those, Scott, he likes his puns, as do I. <laughs> Obviously. And then just literally one more, well, two more. History by Hollywood is a very good one because it it's uh, reviews of films which are based on real events. And what they do is and they'll actually go scene by scene and tell you how true to reality, but not done in a dry way. It's entertaining. And then final one is called Napalm in the Morning. And it's the Vietnam War through film. So they take all the classic films like Full Metal Jacket and Apocalypse Now. And again, they'll tell you how realistic it is. And I think a couple of them are actually, I don't think they're Vietnam vets, but they're actually been in the military. So they know what they're talking about. Well, that is a quote from uh, from Apocalypse Now, the title. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I love the smell of Napalm yeah. in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. There's a hundred others, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay. I'll give you that poem. I'm going to mention a poem because I love poetry. I love words. And Anthony is a lover of poetry and words and has taught, taught English as well, I believe. Mm. Yep. Still am. Yep. Still teaching English. <laughs> so this is The City of Sleep by Rudyard Kipling, who is one of my favourite authors. Over the edge of the purple down where the single lamplight gleams, know ye the road to the merciful town that is hard by the sea of dreams where the poor may lay their wrongs away and the sick may forget to weep. But we pity us, oh pity us, we wakeful are pity us. We must go back with policeman day, back from the city of sleep. Weary they turn from the scroll and crown, fetter and prayer and plough. They that go up to the merciful town for her gates are closing now. It is there right in the baths of night, body and soul to steep, but we pity us, our pity us, 
We wakeful, O pity us. We must go back with Policeman Day, back from the city of sleep. Over the edge of the purple down, ere the tender dreams begin. Look, we may look at the merciful town, but we may not enter in. Outcast hall from her guarded wall, back to our watch we creep. We pity us, our pity us. We wakeful, our pity us. We that go back with Policeman Day, back from the city of sleep. There you go. Wow, it's lovely, yeah. There's a lovely rhythm to that, to the writing as well, isn't there? Absolutely. Well, I've always found that, even with his novels, there's a rhythm to his writing in that as well that I I really like. What's the famous quote with Kipling about treating two imposters? There's a brilliant quote which uh, has always stayed with me. I was thinking... This coming up, I knew about, you know, the love of poetry and of literature, and I thought, I've got to do something because it's something that I don't, not able normally to go into. I've got lots of poetry books. Because at the side of me as well, I've got Spike Milligan's book of Milliganimals. I've got quite a bit of T.S. Eliot as well, because I love the uh, practical cats. There's so many to choose from, you know. That... I'm going to swear again, I'm afraid, but Larkin wrote a poem about your parents, they fuck you up. <laughs> I've been dealing with family drama recently, so it kind of stuck with me. I know the, the Kipling, I mean, I, I won't read the whole poem, but I think the famous bit is always, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. And then just the famous line is, if you could meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think with poetry, same with really good song lyrics, I don't think there has to be one meaning. You can take whatever you want from it. And it's interesting, that line, don't look too good nor talk too wise. I often think about that when I'm podcasting, because when you're trying to dispense some sort of truth that you've learned one of the natural reactions of people would say is to, to feel like they're being patronised. Yeah. It's like a reflex action. And I've had this before. Like Again, you know what I was saying earlier when, when I used to be doing these events in Oxford Street? When you confront somebody with something that they kind of suspect might be true, but it goes against their conditioning, they will get angry. And one of the things they'll say is, oh, yeah, you know everything, don't you? That's one of those reflex. It's basically an ego reaction. Okay, uh, yeah. Because I think, you know, if social media has proved anything, it's proved that inside every adult, there's still a child. You know, again, including myself, I'm not saying I'm any, any different. I've been triggered on social media. I've got into arguments. And I look back and I think, Jesus Christ, you're 40 years old and you've been just engaged in an argument that would shame a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. So that's an interesting thing as well. You know, we won't go on a tangent now, but ego is another thing if your listeners want to take anything away from that study ego study your own ego and see how much it basically guides your actions and how you need to guard against it because the ego is essentially i mean the id is the child but i think an ego makes you behave in a childish way so there's so much to the mind but you've got to be very if you are interested in developing you've got to be very honest with yourself and it's very painful as well it's painful to analyze your own behavior but you know you don't need to necessarily go into therapy or you know and have a professional you can almost do your own self-coaching or self-therapy in a way, especially with the internet, you know. You can get so much. I mean, you can, you've can. you got a whole university course there waiting for you. To pick and choose a little bit, but 
you know, there's so much opportunity now to learn that there's really no excuse in my book for not, you know, at least questioning what you've been told and stuff. Yep, the information's you know, I mean, out there. You don't know how easy you've got it nowadays with the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, again, one, one of the things that people will say about conspiracy theories, they'll say, again, I'm using the term in the sense of this sort of weaponization of it. They'll say, uh, oh, I bet you read that on the internet. Or they'll talk about people on the internet. Who do you know that doesn't use the internet? Apart from, you know, your granny and children under the age of five, although they probably do, to be honest. <laughs> so when they say, like, stuff on the internet, that doesn't really mean anything. I think what they mean is that a lot of stuff on the internet is not necessarily sourced. I get that. But in terms of, you know, just learning and self-development, I mean, there's so much there. It's all there waiting for you, if you're so inclined. Anyway, that's the last speech I'm making today. That's all right. I don't need to ask Thank you your advice much. now because you've just given it. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the podcasting. I think that works for podcasting as well, what you've just said. Yeah, I mean, with the podcasting, the sort of mechanics of it, I think last time I was on, I was saying, yeah, you know, try and find a nice middle ground between slightly smooth. I take out the ers and ums, for example. And if there's too much repetition, I edit that out. But then I train. I don't think it sounds too slick because another thing is if you watch the news, just watch a news program and really analyse it. It's just slick beyond belief. They even talk in that funny voice. Hello, welcome to the news. And they'll say something like, um, America has pulled out of Afghanistan. And they'll show footage of, probably saw that footage of those Afghanis falling from that American military plane that was coming out of Kabul. If you go back to, um, this is not really nice to watch, but if you ever watch Walter Cronkite announcing the JFK, that JFK had died, he puts down his glasses and he looks like he's about to burst into tears. That would have no place in today's newsroom. They're not interested in anybody getting emotional. It's Everything has got to be slickly delivered. This is the news. A hundred people have died in a suicide attack in Iraq. It's just this horrible desensitization. So I think with podcasting, especially if you're talking about something that you feel is important, personalize, you know, tell stories about yourself. You know, I'm doing it a lot for myself, but you sound like you've got lots of good stories. I've got hundreds of stories from my own life. So I try and find, I try not to self-indulge too much, but people love it when they personalise. As we were saying earlier, when you get to know a podcast and you listen to a few episodes and you start to like the person and start to feel like you have a kinship with them, then when they start talking about their own life, I love it. You know, I think, oh, brilliant. Like the psychology in Seattle guy, Kirk, he's very professional. He's a professional therapist, but then he talks about his own vulnerabilities, times when he's been afraid. And I love that. You know, I really warm to people. I don't really want something that's too slick. If I listen to a podcast and I like the person, I want to hear them talking about, you know, their own fear or their own vulnerabilities. Of course, it depends on the topic. If you're doing a review of, a, of an album, there's probably not a place for that. But Unless you're reviewing the first John Lennon album. Oh, oh, there you go. Yeah, it's built in then, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I did an episode on that with um, Dave Thermay. You know, I've got a Beatles podcast. Yeah, have you? Yeah, Dave's been on twice, actually. Yeah. It was called John Lennon in 1970. I was doing a series where I take a year and we talk about the news events, which tend to be always nom- always dominated by Vietnam, as you can imagine, from that 60s, 70s period. Yeah, I've heard that. And Dave, Dave and I were talking about Plastic Ono, and we both agreed afterwards that the album was getting better the more we talked about it. I get very emotional. You know, I've, I've never burst into tears during a podcast, but I've, some things really touch me very deeply. And I'm that kind of person. Perhaps it's because I'm half Italian. I don't know. And that Plasticono band, it really, 
it hits me very hard because, you know, I didn't have the struggles of John Lennon. I, I grew up in a fairly stable family that I'd argue, you know, <laughs> scratch beneath the surface of any family. But I really identify with those struggles. So I, I let myself get slightly emotional and personalised. And I don't, I don't do it just because I think the audience is going to like it. I just, you know, I turn the mic on and I just go into this other space, basically, as we are right now. Yeah. I don't engineer it. It just happens. I don't even remember what I was talking about. It's okay. <laughs> Personalised. Like, yeah. It's like if I pick up a guitar sometimes and I'll just naturally go somewhere on the guitar and it's innate. Yeah. yeah. And break the rules as well. You know, I mean, uh, talking about Nirvana, there's a... I think it's Serve the Servants from In Utero. Okay. I'm sure it's that song. He goes into the solo. The solo is more or less in a completely different key. It shouldn't work at all. But In Utero is all about basically mental illness, isn't it? I think In Utero is almost Kurt's Plastic Ono band in a way. Yeah. But yeah, Kurt Cobain was an amazing guitarist because, you know, obviously technically he wasn't amazing. But he would play stuff that just sounded like, what is he doing? Like, it's not even in the right key. But it just fits. Like I think, that, like I was saying earlier, I think Nirvana just totally holds up. If you compare it to, say, Pearl Jam, I like Pearl Jam, but that doesn't that just doesn't hit me in the gut. I mean, Chris Cornell, Soundgarden, that hit me in the gut. Yeah, but then he um, he broke some rules with guitar chords that he'd use. Absolutely, dissonance. You know what dissonance yeah. is when you put notes together that don't fit. You know, when I was making albums, my producer would occasionally say, "Yeah, but that note doesn't fit with that chord." He's very open to experimenting, mm. don't get me wrong, but I would say, yeah, but I kind of like it. It sounds wrong, but I kind of like it because it yeah. it must connect with me in some way. You know, We don't always know why, do we, as creative people? It's some of the reason why I like the music of Eno, because it, Brian Eno will put in a lot of dissonance or things that shouldn't work in the music, mm. but it does because it gives it that extra. I think that sort of thing works mainly with music that is of an emotional as an emotion to it because then that emotion is brought out by that dissonance and the what shouldn't work but actually it does work because it gives it that something i think also maybe it's something to do with imperfection because like i say with the news or with i struggle with modern music uh, modern rock music particularly there's very little i got to sound like such an old man but there's very little since the white stripes that has really interested me i've tried but the thing is, I think nowadays we have so much music. When I was in Spain, someone downloaded 30 gigabytes of music to my hard drive. So I've already got more music than I can ever listen to in my entire life. Yes. But I i don't really like the modern rock sound. I think the White Stripes, he did something very clever. It sounds like modern music and old music almost at the same time. Do you know what I mean? And Jack White was a kind of in the Kurt Cobain school where he's not really a great guitarist, but... It just sounds very powerful. Do you know what I mean? Jack White's a bit sloppy. I mean, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, if you were really dissecting that, you'd say he's a really sloppy guitarist. But who cares? Because it's just brilliant. You know, it is. what are we talking about? <laughs> it's okay. We'll, we'll go back onto track notes now. So, yeah, yeah. Um, God. <laughs> okay. So where can people find your show and get hold of you? Right. Yes. So, um, yeah, I have a third podcast called Film Gold, which I won't talk about now, but it's basically a deep dive into films. Wait for season six for that episode. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you and I could talk about films uh, for uh, probably the rest of our life. But Absolutely. Anyway, Film Gold, yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon is the one that your listeners probably already know about. And then Life and Life Only. They're available in all the usual places, but I think I'll give you the Twitter because I'm finding Twitter is a, quite a good place. So Glass Onion is Onion Lennon with a capital O and a capital L. 
Life and Life Only is Life Only 75, and Film Gold is Film Gold 75, capital F, capital G. I also have a website, finally, which is Anthony with no H, Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O.com. And that has got my blog, all my music, which is five albums and demos and covers and live videos, and then all my all the links to all my podcasts. So basically everything is there, finally, in one website. Thank you very much. It's been great. I mean, we've done uh, it has, two we, and a half hours. We've, we've talked for nearly three hours. No joking. I feel as high as a kite. When I get in these conversations, it's like my new drug. I barely drink anymore. It's a legal one, so we're fine. Yeah, I barely drink anymore. I've cut out the naughty stuff. So, you know, we all need a drug, don't we? We do. Great conversations is a great drug. So, yeah, just thank you very much, and thank you for letting me talk. And it's fine. It's great. Not shutting me off. Or... So thank you for chatting today, Anthony, and thank you, everybody, for listening. You can get hold of me, get in touch with the show we now have our own email account, which is podslikeus at gmail.com. And you can also go to the website, themarvzone.org, for anything to do with me, if you really want to go down that rabbit hole. But uh, for now, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you listen again to another episode of Pods Like Us. support my work across my three podcasts which are life and life only glass island on john lennon and film gold go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash anthony rotuno where you can make a one-off donation or take out a monthly or yearly subscription which will give you early access and bonus podcast content thanks again for listening